0: Hello, and welcome to Texas True Crime. I'm your host, Jessica, and I'm so glad you're here with me on my first episode. Today, I'm going to talk to you about the murder of Mark Kilroy in Matamoros, Mexico in 1989. It's, the reason I picked it for my very first episode is because it's the first true crime, I guess, case or news story that I remember. I was 11 at the time, and my grandmother, was a complete news hound. And I spent most of my time with her. Um, she, and especially she loved true crime, even before true crime was really kind of a thing. And, um, she would read true crime books. She would read the newspapers. She had a subscription to several newspapers and of course watch news outlets all the time. And then of course she liked to discuss her thoughts and theories about these crimes that were happening and what was going on. And I think that's where I became a lover of true crime also because you can't help but make your own theories and want to know why would someone do the things that they do? So today we're going to talk about Mark Kilroy. He was a college student and, um, he and his friends have been planning their spring break trip since the fall semester. And so on the morning of Friday, March 10th, his friend Bradley Moore left Bryan College Station where he was a student at Texas A&M and drove to Austin where Mark was a student at the University of Texas and picked him up. And then they headed out to their hometown of Santa Fe, Texas to pick up their other two friends, Bill Huddleston and Brent Martin. Now Santa Fe, Texas is a small town and it is located in between Houston and Galveston, Texas. All four were childhood friends and they had gone to school together in Santa Fe. So the boys were really looking forward to spending their time together because it had been a while since they'd gotten to spend time together. They had all gone their separate ways to go to college. And um, they'd even talked about how this might be the last time they really got to spend an extended period of time together. So the boys loaded into Brent's car and set out for South Padre Island a little after midnight that Friday. The drive took them about nine hours, and um, they didn't arrive in um, South Padre Island until sometime mid-morning on that Saturday. So the boys checked into their hotel, showered, ate, and then, of course, hit the beach. Now, anyone who has ever spent any time on a beach during spring break knows it is crazy. There are things going on all hours of the day and night. There are promotions with beer companies. There are parties going on. Music is playing, and this was no different in 1989. And South Padre is one of the biggest spring break destinations in Texas and really in the United States. So the boys quickly got into a routine. They would hit the beach early in the morning, have lunch, go back to the beach and watch the Miss Tanline contest. And then in the afternoon, they would try to take a nap and then head back out in the evening for the festivities of the evening, which of course meant dancing, drinking, partying, your typical spring break behavior. Um, On Sunday night, the guys headed for Matamoros, Mexico. Matamoros was a very popular spot for spring breakers to hit because it was only about a 40 minute drive from South Padre Island. And you could drink legally in Mexico at 18. So Matamoros really did um, cater to the spring break tourists. This brought in a lot of money for them. And so the guys parked their car on the on the Texas side in Brownsville at the International Bridge to walk across to Matamoros, Mexico. Now, this may sound weird in today's time frame, but at this point, this was very common. People parked in Brownsville all the time and walked over to work, to shop, to eat, whatever. It was very common for people to walk across the border into Mexico, and it wasn't a big deal. You stopped at a checkpoint, told the authorities, why you were crossing, and went on your way. I uh, used, my family, we used to go all the time. We loved to go walk across, eat, shop, and then come back to Texas. So the boys went across, ready to party for the night, and on their way, while they were walking, they met some girls from the University of Kansas, and they all partied at a place called Sergeant Peppers that night. Now the bars usually had names that were English names, especially during spring break to try to, um, be more, uh, to be more interesting to the American spring breakers. So, um, they had a great time and everybody then of course headed back across and drove back to their rooms at South Padre Island. Monday was another wonderful day at the beach they stayed with their routine, got up, hit the beach, got some sun, had lunch, went back to the beach for the Miss Tanline contest, had a nap, and then um that evening they went to a party that was being thrown by some of Mark's friends um from college. So they'd partied all afternoon, And at about 1030, the guys decided that they wanted to head back across the border to Matamoros. They parked on the Texas side again and walked across just like they had the night before. Now, by this time, spring break was in full swing and 15,000 spring breakers had made their way to Matamoros to party. So it was jam packed. Kids were wall to wall. They had filled up the streets and all the clubs. The guy's first stop was Los Sombreros. And then after that, they headed to a place called the London Pub, which had actually been renamed the Hard Rock Cafe for spring break. Mark met up with some girls, and so for a while, the other guys didn't see him. Now, around 2 a.m., Bill Huddleston suggested that they head back to South Padre Island. He was tired. They'd been partying for almost three days straight now. And um, the other guys agreed. So... When Bill, Bradley, and Brent walked outside of the Hard Rock Cafe, they saw Mark talking to the girl from the Miss Tanline contest. He was leaned up against a car, and they were talking. Um. Now, it was crowded, so the boys tried to cross the street to get over to where Mark was, but it was a losing battle. So they started moving down one side of the street. Mark was on the other. And they made it to a place called Garcia's. It was a bar. It was kind of the last spot before you cross the border. Bradley and Brent were waiting down there. Mark had stopped in front of a private home to say goodbye to the girl from his tan line contest. And then he and Bill got together at that point. Bill then decided that he had to go to the bathroom and couldn't make it back across the bridge into Texas. And so he ducked behind a bush in an alley to use the restroom. But when Bill stepped back out, Mark had vanished. Now, Bill had only been gone just long enough to use the restroom and come back. So it was less than five minutes that he was gone. The guys were worried, and of course, they searched for Mark for a long time. They searched well after the bars had closed and the streets were empty of everyone. They had gone home. At this point, it was about 4.30 a.m., They were still a little nervous because this wasn't typical for Mark, but they decided that they would head back to South Padre Island because they thought, you know, maybe Mark caught a ride with someone else. They figured, you know, he would show up tomorrow. He'd be hungover and with some story to tell. But when the next morning came and Mark still hadn't shown up, They knew something was wrong. So the boys went together and they filed a police report to say that Mark was missing. Now here the boys were, they were on spring break. They had been having a great time and then their friend goes missing. They don't know what to do. And not only did he not, he went missing, he didn't go missing in the United States. He went missing in Mexico. So they didn't really know what the right thing to do was. And the investigation started as just a routine missing persons investigation. You know, the police said, don't worry. Usually students reported missing in Matamoras They turn up fairly quickly. They had a crazy night. They got lost along the way and they usually come back. But that wasn't the case for Mark. And unfortunately, it would be a month before he was found. Now, Mark's case drew more attention because his uncle, Ken Kilroy, worked at the United States Customs Service in Los Angeles. And when Mark's father got in touch with his uncle to let him know, hey, Mark is missing in Mexico, his uncle immediately got a task force together and um, got the Brownsville police to start a search for Mark. Now, uh, Madame Morris was worried about bad publicity affecting tourism during spring break and in general. So the Mexican police at first tried to shift blame and suggested that Mark had disappeared in Brownsville, not in Matamoros. But Mark's friends were adamant. They said, no, he did not go missing in Brownsville on the Texas side. He went missing in Matamoros. He never left Mexico. So a police investigation started in full swing at the urging of Mark's uncle. And Mark's parents came down and they were very involved. They passed out 20,000 flyers across the Rio Grande Valley and offered a $15,000 reward for information leading to Mark's whereabouts. They searched jails and hospitals on both sides of the border and the police were really starting to worry that foul foul play was suspected, especially when he wasn't back within 24 hours. Authorities originally thought that Mark had probably been a victim of drug-related violence or a robbery killing, but there were no leads. They had nothing to go off of. Investigators finally asked Mark's friends if they would be willing to go under hypnosis to see if there was anything that they might remember that could help them find Mark. So while under hypnosis, I think I said that right. Uh, Bradley said that he remembered a young Hispanic man in a blue plaid shirt with a very visible scar on his face, walking up to Mark and saying, hey, don't I know you from somewhere? Right before he went missing. But this still really didn't turn up much to go on. So things were dragging out and nothing was happening. On April 1st, 1989, the Mexican state authorities were stationed at a routine checkpoint near Santa Elena when a pickup truck blew through the checkpoint without even stopping. Officers were shocked that he didn't even slow down. He acted like he was invisible. And that's exactly what that driver thought. The driver was Seraphine Hernandez-Garcia. The police decided to follow the driver at a distance in an unmarked car. They were curious where this person was headed and why he was so confident. They followed him down a dirt road that led them to Rancho Santa Elena. Now the police watched from a distance, and Seraphine messed around at the ranch for about 30 minutes, and then he left. Officers took this opportunity to do a quick search. While they were there, they found colt paraphernalia and traces of marijuana. They looked into several vehicles and could see a fine green dust on the seats and in the bed of several pickup trucks. And since they had experience with finding vehicles that had been smuggling drugs, they knew exactly what they were looking at. These vehicles had been used to smuggle drugs. Now, the caretaker was at the ranch and police talked to him for just a little bit and it was obvious he was scared. He, you know, he said, I don't know what goes on here. I'm just the caretaker. But he did tell them that the ranch was owned by the Hernandez family. The Hernandez family was a well-known family of drug smugglers. On April 9th, Commandant Benitez had assigned several agents to watch the ranch and a Hernandez family hideout in Matamoros. He had also, with the help of DA agents in Brownsville, tapped into the cellular phones that the Benitez that the Hernandez family used in their cars. He was able to listen in and get enough information that they were able to return and arrest Seraphine, his uncle Elio, and cult members David Serna, Valdez, and Sergio Martinez, Salinas. They also arrested the ranch caretaker, Domingo Reyes Bustamante. What surprised Commandant Benitez most was how easy the arrests were. Not one single shot was fired. In fact, everyone was relaxed. It was as if they had gotten a traffic ticket and nothing else. Commandant Benitez decided to let them sit overnight and lock up, hoping that would make them a little more eager to talk and less confident. Instead of questioning the Hernandezes, officers decided to instead start questioning Domingo the next morning. After all, he wasn't a hardened criminal, and he was scared. As soon as he realized that the Hernandez brothers were in jail, he started talking. Yes, the ranch owner smuggled dope, he said, and there was a ton of it, more or less, stored there until just two nights ago. The officers wanted to know who were involved. Domingo named everyone that they had already put into prison and several others, names that they recognized during the tap phone conversations. People come and go all the time at the ranch, Domingo told them. Some are friends and some are workers, but there are others, and those are treated very badly. Domingo even said that there had been an American there once, but then he stopped short. All of a sudden, the room was silent. Everyone wondered the same thing. Could the American have been Mark? Tell me about him, said Commandant Benitez. Reluctantly, Domingo recounted a day during the past month when he saw a young man tied up in the back of a blue suburban at the ranch. The youth had been inside it all night, he said. He also said that he felt sorry for him, and so he made him eggs and brought him some water. And then the bosses came and took him away. This was about three weeks ago, Domingo told them. Commandant Benitez exchanged a look with his top agent, Miguel Antonio Rodriguez. Describe the boy, Benitez said to Domingo. Domingo stopped and thought. After a moment, he said, I remember. He was blonde. Benito pulled out a picture of Mark and showed it to Domingo. That's him. That's the boy. The pieces of the puzzle started to fall together drugs, gangs, a missing student from Texas they all were pieces of the puzzle. And now, Commandant Benitez knew. He had to understand how to end this and end it quickly. Interrogations began Sunday evening. After three hours of questions, Elio and the others were still laughing, still certain that nothing could happen to them. It was unnerving. They truly believed that nothing could happen to them. They weren't worried at all. Seraphine was the first suspect to crack. He admitted it was true. They smuggled drugs for a living. and yes. They had killed Mark Kilroy. The ritual taking of a life brought them great magical power and success, he told them. It was our religion, our voodoo, Seraphine explained in a reverent tone that suggested that the participation in human sacrifice was no different than any other religious ceremony. We did it for success. We did it for protection. He told us killing would bring us power. He told us our souls were dead. When that happens, you can do anything to anyone. And then Seraphine smiled eerily at the agents. Seraphine did seem cold. He seemed like he had no feeling at all and no remorse or any idea that what he'd done was morally monstrous. Seraphine told how his uncle and all the others in the gang belonged to a voodoo sect led by El Padrino. The godfather, he said, was Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo, a Cuban American witch from Miami who now lived in Mexico City. He's very powerful and smart, and he runs our business in Matamoros. He has connections all over Mexico. Even movie stars go to him, said Seraphine. Calmly, Seraphine told how they had kidnapped Kilroy from the streets of Matamoros, luring the drunken college student into a pickup truck with the promise of a ride across the bridge. They then blindfolded and bound him with duct tape, then brought him to the ranch, all the while promising him that he would not be hurt. But the next afternoon, El Padrino arrived. A dozen or more of Constanzo's followers gathered around the shack they used as a temple. Kilroy was stripped and dragged inside, where Constanzo beat, tortured, sodomized, and mutilated him then murdered him with a machete blow that laid open his skull. Seraphine's eyes gleamed when he described the final act. Constanzo scooped out Kilroy's brain and placed it inside a terrible, magical cauldron that he called the Nganga. This was where their dark gods dwelled, inside the little temple. A nondescript wooden shack tucked behind a corral only 300 meters from the warehouse at Rancho Santa Elena. This temple of death was so deceptively innocent-looking that agents have visited the ranch three times and never once noticed it. Now an Nganga is a cauldron, literally, where layers upon layers of death basically are. And that's where, that was where the rituals took place, were around this Nganga. Um, Adolfo Costanzo would um, boil turtles, human brains, he um, poured blood in it, and the more rotten it became, as far as he was concerned, the more powerful it was. Adolfo told them that they had to go and get them a white, young, male college student, Seraphine explained. He said, you know, like a spring breaker. He wanted to put his brains in because it was going to give the spirits more power. Seraphine told his tale with little expression on his face, except during moments he considered humorous, and then he'd giggle. That's when officers became upset and usually turned the camera off to apply their own pressure to him. You won't be able to keep us here, little Seraphine told them, just like Elio had also said. You'll see... So after Commandant Benitez heard the confessions, he had Seraphine tell him in greater detail what had actually happened to Mark. And he had him tell everything that they had done. After that, he took Seraphine and called in his Mexican SWAT team and a team from the United States to come in. And then they took Seraphine out to the ranch. Seraphine led them to the shack, and inside the shack, candles were still burning on the floor. Someone had come to light them that morning. Seraphine said, though, he didn't know who had been there. Next to the candles were four small kettles one containing the glassy eyed, severed head of a goat, another holding a dead rooster. In the others lay a rotting turtle, twigs, coins, gold beads, and a dim, a dim, sorry, excuse me, a grim looking statue of Alegua. Now, Alegua was another one of the gods they worshipped, and he was the patron saint of drug runners. All around the floor, these, all scattered all around the floor on these pots were dozens of half-smoked cigars, empty rum and tequila bottles, chili peppers, and pennies for the god of metal, Algan. From a roof beam dangled two bloody wires twisted into loops the diameter of human wrists. They were tools that the cult used for hanging the dead so that their blood could be drained into the nganga Seraphine explained. Covering everything in the shack were spatters of black, sticky blood and most of the objects in there were strange to the other agents. But they recognized that all over the Bizarre Rituals, everything was covered in blood. And the stench was horrendous. Commandant Benitez would later say that it was the smell of death everywhere. Near the center of the shack squatted the large cauldron, and it contained 28 wooden sticks. There were branches cut in ceremonies and used in the rites of Palo Mayombe. The palos, or sticks, were plunged into a dark liquid inside the cauldron, And mixed in, there were shells, railroad spikes, bones, peppers, garlic, a bow and arrow, scorpions, spiders, a dead black cat, and other objects not readily identifiable. Dead things or pieces of dead things. A black pulpy mass floated in the middle of it all, flecked with fragments of white bone and strands of hair. Benitez thought of Seraphine's confession and realized that the thing floating in the cauldron was a brain, a human brain. This is Adolfo Zenganga, Seraphine said reverently. This is where the spirits live. This is where Mark's brain is. The agents were shocked. No one could believe what they were actually seeing. It was awful and scary. Now, because Commandant Benitez was also a superstitious man, he had brought in his own curandero, but one who practiced white magic. He brought him in to cleanse the place of bad energy so that no one would be cursed or fall victim to Adolfo's black magic. So... That being said, before Commandant Benitez would let anyone in to search or to start looking for evidence, he had his curandero do a cleansing ceremony so that the officers would be safe. The curandero rushed into the shack and he knocked everything over. He scattered the evil ritual objects around the room and sprinkled holy water from a small bottle all over everything. Then, he systematically threw dozens of rum bottles as hard as he could to the cement floor of the shack, driving the evil spirits from the place by destroying the vessels that supposedly held them in the glass. He tipped over plates and bowls and kicked them with his his feet. The Mexican police looked on, nodding approval, while many of the police officers from the United States really didn't understand what was happening. Um... But Commandant Benitez wasn't worried that even if some of the evidence might be destroyed because he knew that there was evil there. And as far as he was concerned, they had to have a ritual to cleanse the place and drive the the black magic out. Because he was sure that if they didn't do this, then there would be terrible consequences for everyone involved. After the Corindero had done his work for the police, things calmed down and the agent started to look around. And that's when they noticed a stained machete laying on the floor. Commandant Benitez looked at it, and that's when he said, that's, the, that's when he told the others, This is the tool, this is the machete that they used to kill Mark Kilroy. And then Seraphine smiled at him and said, Yes. You're right. Commandant Manitas looked at him and said, "Show us where Mark Kilroy is. Show us where he's buried." There's a wire, Seraphine answered. It's easy to find. I'll show you. He led the agents out to a patch of dirt just outside the corral. It's attached to a spine, he said, with little feeling. The group stopped. There, little, just like Seraphine had said, was a metal wire, the kind that you would use for clothes hangers. Sticking about two or three feet out of the ground. The wire was not a marker, Seraphine explained. It was attached to Kilroy's vertebrae so that once the body was fully decomposed, his spinal column could be pulled free, cleansed of the flesh, and be made into necklaces for the cult so they could wear them around their neck for further protection. Seraphine said he didn't have one of his own yet because he hadn't earned one. Seraphine seemed sad that he didn't have a necklace of his own. And it made everyone sick. Combinat Benitez looked at him and told him to dig. Seraphine hesitated at first. And then when he looked around, he realized that no one was joking with him. And he started to dig. Seraphine dug and he dug. And it he ended up digging about four feet down before his shovel finally hit something. What he had done is he had, he had hit bone. And when he pulled the wire free that he had shown the police officers, he, fa- he pulled up Kilroy's spine and his lower back, and they'd been hacked away from his body and buried on top of his other remains. Seraphine continued to dig, and then he found um, Mark's severed legs. And they had been cut off just below his knees, and then they get at the ankles. One of the officers asked him, why did they do that? Was it part of the ceremony? And Seraphine just said no. They just did it so he would fit in the ground easier. Everyone was disgusted because he had absolutely no feeling. This was just business to him. This was what they did to all of their victims. And it was because they thought this was going to bring them power, it was going to bring them money, it was going to bring them protection from the police officers and from all of their other enemies in the drug smuggling business. It's kind of hard to believe for the rest of us just how delusional these people were and how easily Adolfo Constanzo manipulated all of them into believing this. Now, while Seraphine was digging, um, Commandant Benitez was looking around, and he realized that there were other patches of dirt in the corral, and they were humped up high like other graves. And so he looked around, and he... He stopped and he looked at Seraphine and he said, There are others here too, aren't there? This isn't the only body buried here. And Seraphine just looked at him and said, Yes, there are more bodies. How many are there? asked Benitez. I don't know, Seraphine said. Finally, after Seraphine had dug for hours, he came from the hole, crawled out of the hole where Mark Hero's body. Was uncovered. And the officers were all disgusted by what they saw. Mark Kilroy's body was buried face down. They had just thrown him into the grave like he didn't even matter. He was just another one of their rituals. And they weren't concerned about how they buried him or anything. They had gotten what they wanted from him and then threw him away. It was disgusting. And unbelievable that anyone could treat another human being that way. Um, while all this was going on, Commandant Benitez got on his radio and asked for the morgue truck and said to send a backhoe because there were lots more bodies that they were gonna have to dig up. Once they finally quit digging, they would find 12 bodies all together. They were all male. There weren't any female bodies. Most of them had been buried naked. Most of them had been mutilated. Um, They had been skinned alive. They had been bludgeoned, partially decapitated. Their brains and their hearts had all been removed um, as part of the cult's ritual. One of the officers was quoted as saying, all these years is a cop, and I've never seen anything like this, and neither has anyone else. Now, Adolfo Constanzo was alerted almost immediately of the arrest that had happened in Morris, and he knew that Seraphine was one of the ones that they had arrested. And so he also knew that they were going to begin searching for him. So he cleared out almost immediately. He left to hide and he fled back to Mexico City. Constanzo had Sarah make them plane reservations for Constanzo, Sarah, Martine, and Duby. The four of them were going to fly to Mexico City where Omar would pick them up. On the way to the airport, Sarah realized that she did not have her passport. And so, Consanzo told her that she would have to wait and go on her own the next day. He told her it would be better anyway, that they should separate to travel. The next day, Sarah flew into Mexico City where Omar picked her up. They went to one of the condos that... Costanzo had been keeping. He didn't live there, but he kept it in Mexico City, and that's where they went to hide. Now they had been holed up in Costanzo's condo, and the longer they waited, the more frantic and crazed he got. He couldn't stand being hidden. He couldn't stand worrying that he might be caught, because after all deep down, he knew that his magic wasn't real. He just enjoyed killing people. He enjoyed torturing them. He enjoyed the terror that he brought to people. He enjoyed the power he held over his cult. And he knew this was all coming to an end. He had been caught. Or let me say, he hadn't been caught yet. He knew that his time was running out. So, They decided they could no longer stay at the condo, at his condo, there in Mexico City. So the gang started moving. They had some help from some of his other followers, which still, I don't get it. These people, the two people that ended up helping him, one was a doctor. And the other woman was also, um, she was an executive. These were people that were smart and educated. And they believed this guy. And we're helping him hide out, even after police had found the ranch, raided it, dug up all of those bodies, and exposed him. It blows my mind. So, they started moving around, and with the help of this couple, they kept finding places. Their last place was this dingy, run-down, little hole-in-the-wall set of condos that any other time... Adolfo would have turned his nose up at because, you know, he was living the good life. He had money. He had drugs. He didn't do the drugs, but he had jewelry and clothes. He was into all of that. So the gang cut their hair, dyed it, made themselves as unrecognizable as possible and left the condos as little as possible. These people brought them groceries and um, took care of their needs. So they really didn't have to go out in person very much. So they were laying low. But of course, the longer this went on, the more erratic Constanzo became. He was paranoid. He was convinced that Sarah or one of the others were going to talk against him. And um, he would switch back and forth between being so sure that they would be fine and giving them these big pep talks in his way, all about how their evil magic was going to protect them and it was going to be fine, we would see, to switching back and forth to, you're going to sell me out, I know it, and the only way you're getting out of here is... If I say so. So he was very off the wall, but he was also watching the news all the time. He was glued to it because, of course, he wanted to see what was going on and how close they might be getting to him. And so one of the days they had the news on and they filmed where the police came in and burned his temple at Rancho Santa Elena to the ground. And You know, Commandant Benitez, he was not concerned anymore about destroying evidence. He just thought that it was evil. It needed to be removed. In his mind, it was like a cleansing of the earth and getting rid of all of the terrible things that happened there. So they burned it to the ground and filmed it, put it on the news. Adolfo was furious, screaming, ranting, raving running around their condo, just inconsolable. Now, a few days later, on May 6th, I believe, two police officers were doing a random welfare check on someone else at the condo where the gang was holed up. And um, Adolfo happened to be looking out the window. Well, he saw the unmarked police car. And he saw the police officer looking into another vehicle parked in the parking lot. And he freaked. He he just knew automatically that they must be there for them. Because, I mean, you know, he's so full of himself. Why else would the police be around? And he's the one who got them caught. Because in his crazed state, he grabbed an Uzi and started firing it out the window at the police officers. Broke the glass in the car window. Um, alerted everyone to their presence well of course the police immediately called for backup and soon the place was surrounded so they end up in a standout um trying to get him out of there and in the meantime he says you know I'll, they can't take me alive I don't want to go to prison blah 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 all the things <clears throat> And he convinces them that, you know, if someone will just shoot him, then um, he can come back to life and then bring them all back to life, too, with his dark powers. Now, only one of his followers, Martine Quintana, decided that, you know, he would do it with them. He would die with them. The others were like, no, I don't want to die. Um, and so he convinced Doobie one of the others there with him to shoot him and Martine. So, um, so Adolfo and Martine got in a closet and these are Doobie's words. He said he closed his eyes and he emptied the Uzi into the closet. He didn't even know where he was firing. He just knew he was shooting into the closet. And when there were no, there were no, there was no more ammo left in the gun. He stopped shooting and Martine and Adolfo were dead. Now, Sarah and Omar and Doobie come outside, hands up, yelling, you know, we're unarmed. Don't shoot us. We come out. Police are very suspicious of this. At first, they thought it was probably some kind of distraction to help Adolfo get away. But when police entered the apartment... They saw the two dead bodies in the closet. But at first they were so hard to recognize. They still weren't 100% convinced that it really was Constanzo and and Martine. And that it was someone else in the closet to distract them. But of course they did an autopsy. Checked for fingerprints. And realized yes it truly was Adolfo and another follower. Now um, they took... Doobie, Sarah, and Omar into police headquarters and, of course, question them. And Doobie was just like the others. He was just like Seraphine and Elio and the others they had brought in originally. He was like, you know, my God is coming back. He's going to take care of me. I'll tell you whatever you want to know because I'm good. I'm protected. I have this magic shield around me. He was still buying it. Sarah, at this point, was done. So she changed sides and she tried to claim that she had been held a prisoner, she was kidnapped, she really didn't want any part of that. And yeah, she did dabble in some of the of the ceremonies with Consanto, but she never knew it was that bad. But police weren't buying it. And poor Omar, he tried he also tried to say that he wasn't convinced. Um, sorry, not convinced, but that he wasn't part of the gang. He just was there um, hanging out and had no idea that all these terrible things were going on. Of course, he was there at quite a few of the ceremonies and at the Black Magic, Black Magic rituals. So he knew too. They all knew. Now, police didn't buy any of this. Doobie and Sarah are still in prison to this day. And Omar died while he was in prison from health complications. And the United States actually has it already set up that if, for whatever reason, Sarah or any of the other gang members are released from prison in Mexico City, they will extradite them immediately. So then they can stand trial in the United States for, um, so they can stand trial in the United States and serve the rest of their time. So they'll never be out of prison. They will always remain locked up as they should be. That what they The things they did were horrific. I mean, it's unimaginable that you would, A, do those things to another human being. And B, also stand by and watch while someone else did it. And believe that this was going to give you magical powers. And you were going to be invisible. And bullets would bounce off your body. And that you could do whatever you wanted. I mean, come on. So now Mark's parents, they, um, it has been everything I have read about them It has been remarked on how they were so calm and showed so much grace through all of this and really relied on their faith within the Catholic Church and um, even said, you know, we... We just have to pray and and hope that everyone involved finds peace, and that these people realize that what they've done is wrong. So it's been remarked on time and time again, just how it's amazing their um, the way they handled things. They set up a foundation in Mark's honor to um, help kids do get into activities that are healthy and engaging and it's called the mark kilroy foundation and um it's funded it's a summer camp they come to every year and they're convinced that you know drugs are what caused their son's death and in part that is partly true since it was they were hoping they were running drugs and they were seeking protection against the police to be caught So a lot of it is drug awareness. They do a lot of work in their community and the surrounding communities about drug awareness. And this foundation is to help with that. And then Mark's father also wrote a book all about their experience. So they are, and to this day they continue to work with the foundation and to help with drug awareness. So, I hope you enjoyed episode one. I have really enjoyed doing this and hopefully you guys will enjoy it too. Um, You can always check me out on Instagram at Texas true crime pod. And I also have an email. You can email me Texas true crime podcast at gmail.com. Like rate and tell your friends. Thanks so much.